0: New York, this is Democracy Now!
1: What we saw was minutes of someone struggling for their life. We saw minutes of someone heaving back and forth. We saw spit. We saw all sorts of stuff from his mouth develop on the mask. We saw this. Mass tied to the gurney and him ripping his head forward over and over and over again.
0: Just days after Alabama became the first state to gas a man to death using nitrogen, Ohio considers adopting the same practice, which the U.N. has warned is a form of torture. We'll speak with the spiritual advisor for Kenneth Smith about last week's execution. Then, environment justice and climate activists are praising President Biden for pausing approval of new liquefied natural gas projects.
2: As the public and someone who lives in Sulphur, Louisiana, a town that is surrounded by fossil fuel extractive industry, living here with my six children, who suffer from asthma and eczema and other respiratory conditions. I can say that these facilities are not in the public interest. And we applaud the Biden administration for listening to frontline communities like
0: mine. Plus, we look at a pair of landmark studies by Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch on how the fossil fuel and petrochemical industries are devastating communities from Texas to Cancer Alley in Louisiana. I feel like
2: it's a death sentence, it's like we're being
0: cremated, but not being burnt, but being polluted,
3: dying from the in- inhaling the industries, going into our bodies, going into our nostrils. All that and more coming up.
0: Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. In the occupied West Bank, Israeli soldiers raided Janine's Ibn Sina hospital earlier today, disguised as civilian women and medical staff killing three Palestinians. Shocking hospital surveillance footage shows the Israeli forces storming the hospital with guns raised as they search for the three militants they said they were using the facility as a hideout. Israeli soldiers and settlers have killed more than 370 Palestinians in the West Bank since October 7, while more than 6,300 people have been arrested. Meanwhile, deadly attacks continue in Gaza, where reports say Israeli strikes killed large numbers of civilians in residential areas of Gaza City. The death toll has now topped 26,700 since the start of Israel's assault. Hamas said it's reviewing a new truce proposal negotiated during weekend talks between Qatar Egypt, Israel, and the United States. Hamas's political chief, Ismail Haniyeh, said he'll visit Cairo soon as part of the ongoing negotiations. Hamas has demanded an end to Israel's attacks and a complete withdrawal of occupation forces. Meanwhile, displaced Palestinians continue to flee as Israeli attacks target every part of the besieged territory. This is Suleiman, a young boy who fled Khan Yunis by wheelchair after he lost his legs in an Israeli airstrike.
1: My dream was to play football, but the occupation army did not let me play. They cut off my legs. Thank God it wasn't worse. They stole my dream.
0: An average of over 10 children have lost one or both legs each day since Israel's assault started on October 7th. Many amputations have been performed without anesthesia due to the shortage in medical supplies. U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres is meeting with key donors to UNRWA—that's the U.N. Agency for Palestinian Refugees—after the U.S. and a dozen other countries halted funding for the agency, after Israel accused 12 UNRWA employees of helping Hamas stage the October 7th attack. UNRWA has 13,000 employees. A group of at least 28 organizations, including ActionAid, Oxfam, and Save the Children, issued a statement condemning the decision to suspend funding, warning it could lead to a complete collapse of the humanitarian response in Gaza. UNRWA has fired nine staffers in response to the allegations. Apparently, one other is dead as the matter is being investigated. On Monday, the U.N. said Israeli authorities have not directly shared any evidence to substantiate their claims.
4: You know, we've seen this uh, reference to a dossier. Uh, we saw it in the, in the Times, in The Wall Street Journal, in, 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 in CBS. Uh, I'm not going to name all the media organization, <laughs> but we respect them all. Um, that information has not been uh, given to us uh, officially by, by the Israeli authorities.
0: Unruh reported today. Israel's attacked its facilities in Gaza at least 260 times, killing at least 360 Palestinians since October 7th. The Pentagon on Monday identified the three U.S. soldiers killed in a drone attack at a base in Jordan over the weekend. Sergeant William Rivers, Specialist Kennedy Sanders and Specialist Brianna Moffat were all reservists from Georgia, all three of them African-American. Meanwhile, early reports say the drone was able to bypass U.S. air defenses because troops had mistaken it for a U.S. drone returning to the base. A group called the Islamic Resistance in Iraq has claimed responsibility for for the attack. Iran denies any involvement. President Biden has vowed to retaliate. While the White House has said it's not seeking war with Iran, Republican lawmakers are urging the president to bomb Iran directly. Over a dozen Palestinian Muslim students at Harvard filed a federal civil rights complaint with the Department of Education accusing Harvard of discrimination and failing to protect them from racism and harassment. The students, who are represented by the Muslim Legal Fund of America, say they've been repeatedly targeted for attacks, including doxing, stalking and physical assaults, in some cases simply for wearing a Palestinian keffiyeh on campus. This comes as the City Council of Cambridge, which is home to Harvard, passed a resolution Monday calling for an immediate ceasefire in Gaza and the release of remaining hostages. In related news, the University of Michigan Faculty Senate Assembly passed a resolution to demand the school divest from any company profiting from Israel's war on Gaza. In Pakistan... A court has sentenced former Prime Minister Imran Khan to 10 years in prison, accusing him of leaking state secrets. Khan has rejected the charges against him as politically motivated. He's already serving a three-year prison sentence on corruption charges. Shah Mahmoud Qureshi, former foreign minister, top official in Imran Khan's PTI party, has also been sentenced to 10 years. This all comes one week ahead of February 8th elections, which Khan has been barred from. Khan was ousted as prime minister in 2022, blaming the military rival parties for plotting against him. In other news from Pakistan, the Iranian foreign minister traveled to Islamabad Monday as the two countries moved to de-escalate tensions following deadly airstrikes within each other's borders earlier this month. This is the Iranian foreign minister, Hossein Amir Abdullahin.
1: If you look at the history of Iran and Pakistan, you will see that there have never been any case of the territorial differences or border problems and issues between Iran and Pakistan. So this is one of our prides, and this is one of our very clear manifestations of our good bilateral relations.
0: In Sudan, at least 54 people were killed, including children and two U.N. peacekeepers in attacks along the border with South Sudan. This weekend's clashes in the oil-rich territory of Abyeh, which is claimed by both Sudan and South Sudan, is the deadliest since at least 2021. Meanwhile, the chief prosecutor of the International Criminal Court said there's evidence both the Sudanese army and the RSF are committing war crimes in Darfur. This is ICC Prosecutor Karim Khan.
1: I'm compelled to conclude and report that it's my
4: assessment that we are fast approaching a breaking point
2: and that the conflict in Sudan demands your attention now
1: more than ever.
0: Nearly half of Sudan's 49 million residents are in urgent need of aid, with about 8 million people displaced by the intensifying violence. The U.N. estimates some 12,000 people have been killed, but the true death toll is believed to be much higher. The United States has reinstated economic sanctions on Venezuela following a decision by the Venezuelan Supreme Court to uphold a ban of leading opposition presidential candidate Maria Corina Machado from running. Elections are scheduled for later this year. The government of President Nicolas Maduro accuses Machado of supporting the harsh U.S. sanctions that have tanked the Venezuelan economy and of backing a U.S.-imposed, unelected interim opposition government. Machado, who won a primary election held by the opposition last October, spoke yesterday.
3: Yo recibí el mandato...
5: I received the command of almost 3 million Venezuelans who exercised popular sovereignty on October 22nd, the opposition primary election day. I represent popular sovereignty. They cannot have elections without me, nor the millions of Venezuelans who voted on that day.
0: The White House has given Maduro's government until April to allow Machado on the ballot. Last October, the U.S. eased some sanctions on Venezuela's oil industry under the condition Maduro allowed opposition candidates to participate in the election. Those sanctions could also be rolled back if the ban on Machado is kept in place. Tension continues to mount on Capitol Hill as the Senate pushes negotiations for a bipartisan border enforcement deal attached to military aid for Ukraine. Far-right Republicans, encouraged by former President Trump, have said they'll sabotage the deal, even though it includes some of the harshest immigration restrictions yet, including granting executive authority to block people from applying for asylum once the number of apprehended migrants at the U.S.-Mexico border reaches a daily average of 5,000 in a week. President Biden's already vowed to use the new emergency authorities to shut down the southern border, praising the deal as, quote, the toughest and fairest set of reforms to secure the border we've ever had in our country, unquote. Immigration rights groups have condemned the deal, urging Biden to support humanitarian relief. The proposal also drew criticism from Mexican President Andres Manuel López Obrador.
6: Well, that's not realistic. With all due respect, how are we going to solve the migration problems with walls? How are we going to solve migration problems by closing the border? Why these proposals? Because elections are coming.
0: And here in New York, Harlem council member and exonerated Central Park Five member Yusuf Salam, was pulled over by police Friday night while driving with his family, his wife and four daughters. Dashcam video shows the officer appearing to back off after Salam, who was sworn in less than a month ago, identifies himself as a member of the New York City Council. Salam says the officer never responded to his request to know why he was being stopped. The NYPD later said it's because his car windows were illegally tinted and he had an out-of-state license plate. The incident comes as the New York City Council appears poised to override Mayor Eric Adams' veto on a police accountability bill and legislation that bans solitary confinement in prisons. Intro 586, known as the How Many Stops Act, would mandate officers record demographic information and give a reason for stopping people. Last week, council members, including Yusuf Salam, faith leaders, and community organizers gathered in support of the act. This is activist Crystal Waffle.
2: This intro 586 is not going to stop everything in this moment, but it will give us the data, the information, it will call on our NYPD to act differently. In the 10 years that faith in New York has been in existence, we have stood on those City Hall steps too many times for people who have been murdered by police. One too many times. We have stood on these City Hall steps too many times demanding that the NYPD be transparent. We have stood on these steps too many times asking and demanding
6: accountability, asking and demanding that our NYPD stop, stop killing our people. And those are some of the headlines.
0: This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman in New York, joined by Democracy Now! co-host Juan Gonzalez in Chicago.
4: Hi, Juan. Hi, Amy, and welcome to all of our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world.
0: We begin today's show with news that Ohio lawmakers are taking the, quote, next steps to kickstart their execution chamber, with experimental nitrogen gas. Just days after, Alabama used the same method for the first time in U.S. history, gassing a prisoner to death. The U.N. has warned this is a form of torture. Ohio's Republican Governor Mike DeWine had said lethal injection was no longer an option for executions after a federal judge ruled it could cause severe pain and needless suffering. But Ohio's Republican state attorney general, Dave Yost, wrote on X, quote, perhaps nitrogen, widely available and easy to manufacture, can break the impasse. Yost and other officials are holding a news conference today less than a week after Alabama executed 58-year-old Kenneth Smith with the nitrogen gas asphyxiation last Thursday. This is a media witness to the execution, Ivana Hyenkew. A journalist with AL.com.
7: Kenneth Smith made a lengthy final statement. It began with tonight Alabama choked Alabama Tonight Alabama caused humanity to take a step backward. Kenneth Smith
6: also made a I love you sign in sign language with one of his hands that was facing the room where his family was witnessing along with media witnesses. He appeared conscious for several minutes into the execution.
0: For about two minutes following that, Kenneth Smith shook and writhed uh, for about two minutes on a gurney. That was followed by several minutes of deep breaths on the gurney. Following that, his breath slowed
6: until it was no longer perceptible for media witnesses. The governor's office pronounced the time of death at 8.25. And again, the curtains closed to that room at 8.15 p.m.
0: The day after Alabama executed Smith, Alabama Attorney General Steve Marshall encouraged other states to use nitrogen hypoxia.
8: To my colleagues across the country, many of which were watching last night, Alabama has done it, and now so can you. And we stand ready to assist you in implementing this method in your states.
0: Alabama officials claim the nitrogen gas execution is humane and effective. But for more, we're joined by Kenneth Eugene Smith's spiritual advisor, Reverend Jeff Hood, who says it was the most horrible thing I've ever seen. Welcome to Democracy Now!, Jeff. So, you were there watching uh, Smith die, watching him gas to death. Describe what you saw and we realize this is not easy. You are just coming off of this execution.
1: Good morning, Amy. Thank you so much. Um, Like I said, it was the most horrific thing I've ever seen. I mean, the gas mask fits from the top of the head to under the chin. It's uh, looks like a firefighter's mask. Once the execution began, um, it was very clear that Kenny was um, suffering immensely. He begins to uh, pump back and forth. Uh, it really looked like a, a fish out of water, a fish on a, on a dock. As he pumps back and forth, the, the gurney was shaking. Very clear he was um, resisting or pushing against the, the, the restraints. Every time he pushed forward, his mat, his face would th- thrust into the mask. The mask was tied to the gurney by two, um, you know, short, uh, small pieces of material. So every time he came forward, his face would slam into the front of the mask, and um, there was spit mucus, all sorts of fluids coming out of his mouth, and it was hitting the front of the mask. And so what that looked like was, um, you know, mucus and these fluids were streaming down the mask. Um, you know, he was very clearly and uh, unbelievable to rest. His face was turning purple and red. His eyeballs looked like they were uh, about to pop out. Um, and um, it, 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 I mean, it was horrible. It was absolutely horrible, and it was shocking that this is taking place in a nation that prides itself on being one of the human rights leaders of the world.
4: And, uh, Reverend Hood, I wanted to ask you, this is the fifth execution you've seen now in 13 months. Uh, why do you witness these, and what about this argument that officials and are constantly claiming that there's a humane way
1: to execute people? I mean, for me, uh, there's two reasons. One is to provide witness, like I'm doing right now, to the horror that these executions um, are. Two is, of course, to provide spiritual comfort to the guys that I work with. Uh, I believe that the message of Jesus is very clear, that we are to love the least of these those who society has shunned the marginalized and the oppressed. With regards to the humaneness of this, um, anyone who would say that is either a lunatic or a liar. This idea that what we saw last week was textbook or that it was normal or anything like that is absolutely absurd. There is no humane way to kill people. There is only a ways to kill people. There's only ways to perpetuate evil. Um, You know, it's hard to believe that as a modern society that we are still so addicted to killing each other. And, of course, as we kill each other, we teach each other, we teach our young people to continue killing as a form of vengeance and uh, as a perpetuation of violence. Uh,
0: Reverend Hood, This was the second—well, there was a failed attempt at an execution um, of Mr. Smith— several years ago. Is that right? Where it was November 2022, the executioners frantically sought a vein to deliver the deadly cocktail, resorting at one point to subjecting Smith strapped to a gurney to an inverted crucifixion position as one person on the team repeatedly and painfully jabbed a needle under his collarbone. Even Alabama's ultra-conservative Republican Governor Kay Ivey, um, said there had to be alternative means of execution. And the reason states are moving towards gassing prisoners to death is European companies that provided the chemical right for an injection uh, have said it can't be used to execute people because it harkens back to the Holocaust.
1: Right. Well, I can tell you that uh, if these attorney generals around the country saw what I saw— on uh, last week. I mean, like I said, I mean, this is absolutely uh, horrendous. It's horrific. Uh, I'm thankful that lethal injections have slowed down. I'm thankful for European companies that has pushed back against sending these drugs to the United States. But I will also say that uh, it's very clear that um, what we are witnessing is, uh, again, a a moral apocalypse. We are seeing states trying these different methods that uh, are going to increase the quotient of torture in this country. And uh, again, it's absolutely horrendous.
0: Well, Reverend Jeff Hood, spiritual um, death row advisor, most recently to Kenneth Smith, we thank you for being with us the previous spiritual advisor who witnessed the first failed execution attempt could never see Mr. Smith again because he was destroyed by what he watched. In an extraordinary development, though, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled last week that Oklahoma death row prisoner Richard Glossop will now get the chance to argue for a new trial after maintaining his innocence for three decades. Glossop has faced nine separate execution dates, been given his final meal three times. In 2015, he was saved from death just hours before his execution, only after prison officials admitted they'd ordered the wrong drug. Well, last Monday, Richard Glossop was granted what might be his last lifeline. The U.S. Supreme Court announced it'll hear his appeal, which is also supported by Oklahoma's elected Republican Attorney General Gentner Drummond. On Monday, Democracy Now! spoke to Sister Helen Prejean, one of the world's most well-known anti-death penalty activists who's been Glossop's spiritual advisor since 2015. We asked her to respond.
9: The response of the Supreme Court to grant cert to Richard Glossop was greeted in my heart and by the lawyers and by Richard himself ecstatically. I mean, what a miracle it is coming from three really close calls to execution, and then to see the turn of events in his case, where because of his good lawyer, Don Knight, who was in there with Oklahoma legislators going quail hunting with him and really befriending them, then bringing them to death row to meet Richard Glossop. All these guys are for the death penalty. It's a red state. And they meet Richard, and they begin to look at all the questions in his case, And they get in his court. They get on his side and they begin to speak out. Then, unbelievable to me, I had never seen this happen before. The attorney general of the state of Oklahoma meets Richard, sees the case and actually filed with the defense attorneys to the Supreme Court saying, the state made mistakes in this case and we withdraw the death penalty. So we were waiting and waiting on the court because they've had it several months. What are they gonna do? If you have the main prosecutor in a state withdrawing the death penalty, the Supreme Court is not a prosecutor. You know, it's an adjudicator, a judge. But it took them a long time to acknowledge it and to grant cert with the arguments will probably be heard in June. So over 25 years of the new evidence that surfaced of all the state that all they did wrong will finally be heard by the Supreme Court of the United States. And I believe what will happen is they will remand it back for a new trial which I don't believe any court in Oklahoma is about to do because they did so many underhand things that'll all be exposed. And I think they'll let Richard go free.
0: Sister Helen Prejean, one of the world's most well-known anti-death penalty activists, has been Glossop's spiritual advisor since 2015. She's the author of Dead Man Walking. Next, President Biden's paused approval of new liquefied natural gas projects. We go to Louisiana. Stay with us.
3: Don't let them shoot us, oh Lord. Don't let them save us, oh Lord.
0: Tables of by Charles Mingus. This is Democracy Now!, I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. In a victory for the climate movement, the Biden administration's paused approvals for new plants to export liquefied natural gas. The move comes after years of organizing by activists in frontline communities in Louisiana and other Gulf uh, states who have decried the lNG terminals as carbon megabombs in a statement president biden said quote this pause on new lng approval sees the climate crisis for what it is the existential threat of our time will heed the calls of young people in frontline communities who are using their voices to ban action from those with the power to act unquote oil change international called biden's decision to pause the gas projects a quote huge win for people and planet. Youth activists in Louisiana have been campaigning against the expansion of LNG terminals for years. This is Cami Ozan.
2: My name is Cami, and I live in Sulphur, Louisiana. Liquefied natural gas in my community makes me very afraid. We need to
7: step up and protect the Gulf Coast communities by stopping the approval of new and expanded LNG
0: export projects. These facilities are disproportionately and deliberately built in low-income neighborhoods and communities of color. We're joined now by Rochetta Ozan, the founder and director of the Environmental Justice Group, the Vessel Project of Louisiana. She's also the mother of Cami, who we just heard in that clip. Can you respond to this uh, momentous announcement of Biden last Friday? What exactly it means for your community, not to mention the planet?
2: Thank you so much, Amy, for having me. The Biden administration made a monumental decision in the fight for climate justice by announcing they're going to pause reviewing applications for new liquefied natural gas export facilities. Now, those facilities are called liquefied natural gas, LNG facilities. But we know here in my community, there is nothing natural about releasing methane pollution into the community where children play where adults are inflicted with things like cancer and asthma and other respiratory conditions. Every day there's flaring, there's some type of release of chemicals, there's noise pollution from the loud flares that come through, sounding like trains. So we are thrilled that the Biden administration listened to the people who are impacted by those decisions, and we're saying bravo to this administration.
4: And uh, Rochetta, congratulations on uh, achieving this win. But uh, are you concerned that this is just a pause by the president and could very well be an election here uh, uh, action that he could then uh, uh, reverse later on?
2: This pause is not just a minor achievement. It is a significant milestone because it sets the stage for potential rejections and slows down the progress of these projects, making it harder for them to secure financing. It could not have been possible without frontline leadership, but our work is not over because we are very aware that this is an election year and that this could be, you know, some kind of action to to help get voters or encourage young people to vote for this administration because they told this administration straight out, if you don't make a bold move uh, towards climate, then we're not going to vote for you. So we are aware of that. But what this has done is open the door for investigations to see if these projects are in the best interest of the public. Once these reports come out, if frontline leaders like myself and other frontline community members along the Gulf Coast and in other communities where these projects are overburdenly uh, located, then they will see that these projects are not in the best interest. Again, out of my six children, two of them have asthma. My sister dealt with cancer. My nephew had cancer. This is, this is not right. Enough is enough. And it doesn't matter what president comes after. Once we prove that these projects are not in the best interest of the communities and show the harm that they're doing, if, if they listen to science and look at facts and data and still allow these projects to come in communities, then it will be even more evident that we have been deemed as sacrifices and that they don't care about black, brown, indigenous and low-income people in this country.
0: Well, Rashad Ozan, we thank you so much for being with us. Founder and director of the environmental justice group, The Vessel Project of Louisiana. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. As we turn now to look more closely at the area of Louisiana known as Cancer Alley. An 85-mile corridor stretching from Baton Rouge in New Orleans that's filled with fossil fuel and petrochemical plants. A new report by Human Rights Watch has found newborns living in Cancer Alley experience low birth weights at more than 3 times the national average. The rate of preterm births is also twice the national average, which can cause several long-term health problems later in life, including respiratory illnesses such as asthma and cognitive issues. Cancer Alley is home to predominantly black communities who suffer from the highest pollution-related cancer rates in the country. This is an excerpt from a new video produced by Human Rights Watch, beginning with
5: Caitlin Joshua, resident of Ascension Parish in Louisiana. I first heard the term Cancer Alley when I went to college. I thought, oh my god, this makes so much sense, and it completely defines what we've been dealing with in this area for quite some time. Cancer Alley is, by definition, the long stretch between Baton Rouge and New Orleans that is filled with fossil fuel and petrochemical industry. If you just look at a map where the plantations once existed, or is now majority black and brown population along that same line. It's also the similar map of the petrochemical industries and the build out.
2: I never really associated the industries with our illnesses, but I do know people started dying so fast. And we had a one person died one week. Sometimes he we had two in one week, Sometimes he we had three
7: when i started learning more about what these chemicals are doing to our bodies and that there was a connection between the chemicals that are in our water and in the air and that those chemicals can cause miscarriages and infertility issues that's when i started like realizing okay this may have contributed to
6: my miscarriage The approach that DEQ and industry has taken is to simply try to point to a map and say, oh, well, you know, there's some places where the cancer rates are lower, and we don't see cancer across the entire area at rates that are higher than the the state average. That's not the question, right? The question is, are people who are exposed to cancer-causing pollution developing cancer at higher rates in those communities. And absolutely the data support that yes, in Louisiana, places where you have more industrial pollution, you have higher cancer rates.
2: The industry is expanding on both sides of us. So we almost sandwiched in between and we make a sacrifice here in Donaldsonville. I'm a mother of three kids, uh, one girl. That's my older child and I have a set of twins, a boy and a girl. All three of my babies was preterm deliveries uh, and underweight babies. My son born with only one developed
6: strong lung. The doctor did not have faith that that twin would live to make it with the other twin we know that louisiana has a really high rate of adverse birth outcomes but what we found was that pollution is a really big factor pollution is causing health problems above and beyond cancer our study provides more evidence that people who are living close to petrochemical plants in the area known as Cancer Alley, who are exposed to hazardous air pollution, are more likely to have babies that have low birth weight or deliver those babies preterm. Low birth weight and preterm birth are associated with health problems that can persist into adulthood. My son actually went
2: to school about two miles from the industry, and the air quality caused him not to be able to participate in recess because he would have so many asthma attacks. He would describe it as pinching your nose and trying to suck through a,
5: breathe through a coffee straw. I had asthma my entire life. It does limit a lot of what I can do, um, but I still try and make sure that I can, you know, run up behind my kids, especially my five-year-old. I grew up in Baton Rouge, and we moved to Guismar about a year and a half ago. (laughs) Just last year, my husband and I experienced a miscarriage that was right after the abortion ban in the state of Louisiana. Um, A great deal of the hospitals were turning us away. I spent a lot of time trying to understand why so many women, and myself included, were experiencing miscarriages. Complete strangers that look like me that live in this region have said, you know, I've experienced that multiple times. And then, of course, came back to Cancer Alley. Um, being one of the reasons. I think our state is gonna have to, you know, take a hard look in the mirror and understand that we can't keep saying yes to industry as is.
4: When I look back over the years, we're still at the bottom of everything. As black people who are suffering the brunt of all the ill effects of this petrochemical industry. We don't benefit anything
9: from that. We are the sacrifice zone. We mean nothing at all. What they would like is for all of us to move, for them to buy us out. We die out or they try to buy us out. So every bit of this beautiful river road is industrial.
0: We're dying here a video produced by Human Rights Watch, which has just published a new report, The Fight for Life in a Louisiana Fossil Fuel Sacrifice Zone. We're joined now by the report's author, Antonia Juhas, senior researcher on fossil fuels at Human Rights Watch. Antonia is an award-winning longtime investigative journalist covering oil and energy, author of several books, including Black Tide, The Devastating Impact of the Gulf Oil Spill. Antonia, this is the first time that Human Rights Watch has investigated the human rights toll of the oil, gas and petrochemical industry in the United States the first time in the Gulf Coast. Talk about the significance of this. I mean, the facts and figures in this video and your report are devastating.
3: Thank you. Thank you, Amy, and thanks for having me. And thanks so much for having Rochetta at the opening section and airing the sections of the video. Human Rights Watch did a fantastic report and investigation on coal and mountaintop removal in two thousand and eighteen, but that's the only time that we've done this type of deep um, traditional human rights investigation looking at accusations of human rights harm and then investigating them on the ground for oil, gas, or petrochemicals in the United States and as you said the first time in the Gulf Coast. The significance is documenting, as you say, this devastating harm and demonstrating the fossil fuel and petrochemical industry's role in bringing about these harms. I've covered the Gulf Coast and Cancer Alley for some time. I was actually astounded at the level of pollution, simply the scale of the pollution that we uncovered, and the role of the fossil fuel and petrochemical industry in covering it. Um, Louisiana has— Uh, citizens are exposed to the worst toxic pollution of any people across the United States. The fossil fuel and petrochemical industry contributes to the worst air pollution in the state. They're the second leading cause of uh, water pollution in the state. They're the single largest contributor to greenhouse gas emissions in the state. And the state is failing to regulate those emissions so that people across Louisiana, Cancer Alley in particular, and then black communities in particular, are exposed to devastating amounts of extremely harmful pollution, causing um, uh, expanded rates or extreme rates and risk of cancer, respiratory ailments. And then, as you showed in the clip, the new research that we were able to share by Terrell, St. Julian and Wallace, finding for the first time, the first time this has been investigated in Louisiana, what exposure to extreme air pollution causes to maternal, reproductive and newborn health. And then what we were able to add to that was isolating out that the fossil fuel and petrochemical industry is the single largest contributor to industrial air pollution. And this toll, as you said, is just dramatic, um, three times the national rate for um, Uh, low birth weight, two and a half times for preterm birth, and the devastating toll that that has on people's lives, their livelihoods, and their well-being, and the failure of the federal and state governments to protect, uphold, and defend human rights of people living in, in Cancer Alley.
4: Well, Antonio, I wanted to ask you. This reminds me, uh, decades ago, back in the nineteen uh, eighties, when I was a young reporter in Philadelphia, I worked on a series of articles. At that time, Philadelphia County had the highest cancer death rate of any uh, urban county in the United States, and it was at the bottom of what was then called Cancer Alley in New Jersey, where all the petrochemical, uh, all the petrochemical and oil producing. Uh, Uh, Companies were strung along the New Jersey Turnpike down to Philadelphia. And uh, when I reported back then that the death rates were highest in Philadelphia within the neighborhoods in the two neighborhoods that were filled, one with oil refineries, because Philadelphia was then one of the few cities that had oil refineries within the city limits uh, and with chemical plants. There was a huge uproar. The state introduced a cancer registry. But interestingly, all of the people who were dying were largely white working class people in the Bridesburg Mm -hmm. section of Philadelphia and in South Philadelphia. I'm wondering, you mentioned the black communities uh, uh, that that are affected here. Do you think there's a difference in the reaction uh, to this kind of information when it affects uh, uh, communities of color versus uh, white communities?
3: Yeah, I think that's absolutely the case. And what you're seeing in Louisiana is first, I mean, this history is very important. The fossil fuel and petrochemical industry moved in, as the video showed, um, into the, um, basically onto, on top of former plantations. Some even took the names of the plantations that they moved in on top of. Many pushed out, moved in on top of Communities that had been built that were called free towns, that were communities built by formerly enslaved communities and their families, pushed them out, destroyed them, built side by side within black communities. And what research by Kimberly Terrell also showed is that as the years progressed in the 60s and 70s and and moving forward, the industry actually concentrated the worst polluting facilities and more facilities even more firmly into black communities. So you do have white communities throughout Cancer Alley. They are getting harmed, but the worst polluting facilities, the most polluting facilities are concentrated in those black communities and welcome where Sharon Levine is from um, throughout the region. And we're seeing significantly disproportionate harm and a disproportionate toll on the black communities as a result. So now the community with the um highest risk of cancer in the entire nation, was seven times the risk rate of anywhere else um, in the U.S. from industrial air pollution, is in Cancer Alley, is where Robert Taylor lives. He was also in the video. And what you have here is—so the federal government sets a minimum bar by which all states need to um, have their laws adhere to. And Louisiana basically has its laws at that lowest bar, And then it doesn't enforce them. So the state isn't enforcing them. It's failing to enforce the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, other federal laws. And then the federal government is failing to step in and ensure that the state enforces the law. I mean, I was able to record data that the industry puts out itself. So the industry self-reports its pollution. So what we know about how much it pollutes only comes from the industry itself. And first of all, that, that data has been shown to be sometimes 28 times uh, too low. Uh, the amount that they're reporting is actually 28 times more um, than the, act- the actual emissions are 28 times more than what they're actually reporting. But even based on the self-reported data, they are showing themselves that they are polluting beyond what's allowed under the Clean Water Act, under the Clean Air Act, under federal laws. And there's just a failure of enforcement so that they- you have this extreme burden extreme amount of pollution, resulting in extreme human health harm. And what's important, as you demonstrated with um, you know, lo- what happens in other locations, is you can enforce the law. You can tighten the regulations. You can make them tighter. You can increase enforcement. And you can make the facilities safer— you can force the industry to spend its money not on expanding, but rather keeping the existing operations as clean and safe as they possibly can. And some places do it way better than others. They tighten the regulations, they tighten the enforcement. But we also found, and one of the reasons why we took on this research was to say, you know, it, can you regulate this problem away? And the answer is ultimately no, because not only do you have an undue, unnecessary burden being caused by the fossil fuel and petrochemical industry on the ground and the human rights harms on the ground, you also, of course, have an industry that's the single largest contributor to the climate crisis. And as I said, the fossil fuel and petrochemical operations in Cancer Alley and across Louisiana are the single largest industrial contributor to greenhouse gas emissions in the state. Fifteen percent of the gas that is produced in Louisiana and is moved around in Louisiana and is consumed in Louisiana simply goes to moving around more oil um, and gas. And so this explains the necessity and why local communities are calling for first a moratorium on any new fossil fuel and petrochemical plants. They've said enough is enough. We don't trust that you can operate safely and we don't want you to continue to contribute to the climate crisis. And so we support moratoria on newer expanded operations like the one that Biden has basically put in place for LNG and we we also say don't expand with things like CCS instead figure out how to implement the just and equitable phase out and so we put in place recommended laws and changes to regulation and enforcement that can help speed up that phase out of fossil fuel and petrochemical operations in Cancer Alley in Louisiana and do it in a model, for example, that's already being used um, through the um, Inflation Reduction Act, and that's being applied to um, abandoned oil and gas wells, which are a huge pollution source, dangerous. Um, Workers have been employed to remediate those old sites, turn them into safe sites. Let's do that as we move out of fossil fuels and petrochemicals. Let's hire workers to remediate those sites. Let's build off of what Louisiana is already in the forefront of, which is implementing localized, renewable um, sources of energy that are safer, cleaner, uh, employ workers to do that. And we are offering recommendations that can help move through that transition better regulate the industry now, transition away from it as well.
0: Antonia Uhas, a senior researcher on fossil fuels at Human Rights Watch, will link to the report, We're Dying Here, the Fight for Life in Louisiana, Fossil Fuel Sacrifice Zone. Coming up, we continue with Amnesty International's new report, The Cost of Doing Business, the petrochemical industry's toxic pollution in the USA, back in 20 seconds. With you by Boy. This is Democracy Now. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. The Cost of Doing Business, the Petrochemical Industry's Toxic Pollution in the USA. That's the name of a new Amnesty International report, which finds the life expectancy in predominantly black communities along the Houston Ship Channel in Texas is up to 20 years less than in nearby white communities. The Houston Ship Channel is lined by over 600 petrochemical plants that operate 24 hours a day, disproportionately polluting low-income, largely black and Latin. Next communities. In a moment, we'll talk about the report with one of its authors, but first to the new video produced by Amnesty.
7: A new Amnesty International report reveals human rights are being sacrificed along the Houston Ship Channel in Texas by devastating pollution from over 600 petrochemical plants in the area. These plants process fossil fuels into chemicals to make things like plastics, fertilizers, and pesticides for use in the USA and around the world, including Europe. Fence line communities are regularly exposed to toxic substances linked to a wide range of illnesses such as cancers and respiratory diseases. People that work at the plant told us, oh, that's benzene. Oh, that's, that's sulfur. They, they, they burn all of this off. These communities are marginalized and, in turn, often lack access to the health care they need, let alone the resources to fight this injustice and environmental racism.
4: And minority communities tend to be the ones that are having to deal with the brunt of the issues, and it's is something we'll continue to ...to battle and educate people what's going on.
7: Despite regulations, the Texas Commission on Environmental Quality rarely imposes penalties, allowing companies to evade fines by claiming air pollution is unplanned or unavoidable. They get
0: slapped on the wrist with these little
7: fines. They pay the fines, but they're still polluting. They're still making people sick. In the past decade, there have been widely reported fires and unexpected toxic leaks in the area, resulting in evacuations, injuries and even death. Despite the danger to local communities, the environment, and climate, the petrochemical industry continues to expand as oil and gas companies look to offset anticipated falls in the demand for fossil fuels. We can all play a part in protecting fence line communities from the toxic petrochemical industry. Demand accountability
0: and remedy for fence line communities. A new video report by Amnesty International. We're joined now by Marta Schaff, director of the Program on Climate, Economic and Social Justice and Corporate Accountability at Amnesty International, which just released their new report, The Cost of Doing Business, the Petrochemical Industries, Toxic Pollution in the USA. Um, Marta, thanks so much for being with us. You are naming names from ExxonMobil to Shell. Talk about the significance of the Houston uh, channel and what the cost Of doing
8: business is. Sure. Thanks, Amy. Um, So we are naming names. We looked at, we did case studies of four specific petrochemical facilities. Three of them produce petrochemicals, which are. derived from fossil fuels and used in everyday products such as fertilizers and, importantly, single-use plastics, which are the the production of single-use plastics is projected to double in the U.S. by 2040. And the U.S. is, in fact, the number two producer after China of petrochemical companies. Um, And we looked at one facility that's a storage facility for these petrochemicals. Often, petrochemicals are stored until there's a more favorable price and then shipped out, so exposing communities to further harm. Um, So we are naming names, but at the same time as the segment, as you noted, there are over 600 facilities along the Houston Ship Channel, which is the waterway that runs from the city of Houston to the Gulf of Mexico. So our findings are exemplary of broader challenges and issues in terms of poor regulation and inadequate laws uh, at the state and, and federal level.
4: And, and Marta, I'm wondering, uh, uh, again, years ago when I was looking into some of these issues of pollution in the petrochemical industry, the big problem was that government regulators only came during working hours. And these companies were very good at Mm -hmm. being able to uh, emit their worst pollution at night and on weekends uh, so that the regulators weren't Mm -hmm. even around. I'm I'm wondering what you're able to find uh, these days what's happening.
8: Well, what we found, um, is that many of the air quality monitors, for example, are, they're sparsely located and not necessarily in the communities at issue. Um, and that when residents report um, problems such as vibrations, chemical odors, smoke, other things that would cause them to believe that there's been some sort of exceedance or pollution event. Um, they're not always responded to in a timely fashion. And in fact, Texas has a law, SB 471, stating that if a community has made multiple complaints, that the regulators are not required to respond to their complaint. And this really flies in the face of logic because we know that several communities are exposed disproportionately to these challenges, to these exceedances. So it stands to reason that they would make multiple reports, of course. So this law just came into effect in August of 2023 and is expected to even further undermine residents' capacity to report um, smoke and other uh, odors and events that cause them to to think that there's been some sort of pollution event. Could you talk also uh, uh, about—
4: Uh, uh, I I just want to ask you, you you, you mentioned something called uh, in your report, the affirmative defense that companies use uh, for unpermitted pollution. Could you talk about that as well?
8: Yeah, so the affirmative defense. It's basically a loophole in state law that allows companies to say a particular un unpla- particular emissions event was quote unplanned and unavoidable. So they use they make this claim with great frequency, um, and they are granted the the defense with great frequency by the TCEQ, the Texas Commission on Environmental Quality. So it it basically provides them an out. They may or may not be levied with a small fine, but these fines are so small, that it is more beneficial to the company to continue to operate cheaply and to live with these exceedances as the cost of doing business, the title of the report, and it's the sacrifice zones the communities living on the fence line of these facilities that pay the price for that for that high cost of doing business, in fact. Finally, Amnesty um, International's the, recommendations, Marta hmm So we recommend both, we look at local state and federal law and find that there are gaps in all of these and on top of the on top of the fact that the laws themselves are inadequate they're poorly implemented so we call for much stronger implementation of existing law um, as regards to res- responding responding to complaints to um permitting is a, a permitting renewal is a key opportunity to ask companies to look at their compliance to look at the number of times they've been in non-compliance and to make real demands or to 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 not renew their permits to to insist on changes or close the facilities similarly the EPA should look at the states the extent to which they've implemented federal law in the state and make demands on what's required to ensure that these companies are allowed to continue to operate. Like Human Rights Watch, we also recognize that the petrochemicals industry should not be growing, that fossil fuel derived products should be on a, uh, should be phased out over time. And so we call also call for a moratorium on expansion um, and suggest Several avenues that the state can use to transition folks to good jobs in the renewable energy industry and in remediation in the petrochemicals industry in Texas. Well, we want to thank you so much for being with
0: us. Marta Schaff, Director of Amnesty International's Program on Climate, Economic and Social Justice and Corporate Accountability, will link to Amnesty's new report, The Cost of Doing Business, the Petrochemical Industry's Toxic Pollution in the USA. Um, Amnesty's noted that the production of plastics by petrochemical plants is set to double by 2040, despite the fact that it poses environmental pollutant and health hazards, to say the least, particularly in communities of color. That does it for our show. Democracy Now! is currently accepting applications for a major gifts officer. Check it out at democracynow.org. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan González.